Ready. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. All of the information I have is from public sources. Hello, class. How's everybody today? It's real snowy here. There's a whole lot of snow outside. So I thought I'd take advantage of it and record, thinking it'll act as kind of a uh, sound buffer, because you know how snow absorbs sound, and it gets nice and quiet when there's snow. So today's episode is the result of the poll that I had on social media a couple weeks ago. I asked Jens if Jens wanted to hear a serial killer, killer couple, or killer kid. And it was pretty much between the kid and the couple. So what I did was I found a killer couple who happened to be teenagers at the time. Theoretically, everybody should be pleased. A little bit of a, I don't know if it's a warning, introduction, whatever. But there were several times when I was researching this case that um, I had strong feelings about things that happen. And... You know, I always try to be objective and neutral and just present facts. So I'm just going to give you the facts of the case, as I usually do, the lives of the perpetrators, the crime, and the aftermath. And then later, of course, psychology. And I'm not going to put in my personal feelings on things that happen during the, the people's lives, the lives of the people involved. I'll kind of address it when we get to psychology. But soon, as as you'll see, the killers in the case are two teenage girls. They identify themselves as either gay or bisexual, and that will be a major factor in their relationship and the crime. We'll get into it in more detail, but I want to um, say kind of a blanket statement in that I never, even though you, it might sound like it, or somebody might interpret it as this way. I'm, I'm never excusing criminal behavior. All I'm doing is offering explanations for why people might have behaved in such a way. And you're going to see that these perpetrators had pretty shitty lives, I think is um, an understatement. We're going to see exactly what happened to them. I mean, obviously, they're, they still did what they did. They're still accountable. But there are some mitigating factors because of the way that they were raised and so forth. So I just don't want anybody to think that I'm making excuses for them. If I say anything that sounds like I am, I'm just trying to explain how and why the crime came about. And in psychology, we'll examine closer what the, the uh, people around them could have done different to avoid this. And I hope it's not too much of a spoiler alert to let you know that everybody in this case ends up either dead, in prison, or just very, very unhappy. So 
pretty much, um, if you listen to my criminal justice episode last week, remember how I said that in our system, there's winners and losers. In this case, I don't think there are any winners. Everybody loses something. So today we are going to Georgia, which is, of course, one of the United States in the South. I've been there. I was in Atlanta. And supposedly they they have a saying. This this is not me saying this. I've heard this. Atlanta is a very cosmopolitan city. Like, it's urban. It's chic. It's cool. It's like up. I think they call it hot Atlanta. There's a, a joke in Georgia that says... The only thing wrong with Atlanta is that it has Georgia around it. And once we get into more of the details of these families, I think you'll see what that means. Most of the action in this case takes place in, I guess you would call it suburban Atlanta. First, let's meet our victims. We have Carl Collier, who was born in December 1928, and Sarah Jenkins Collier. She was born in February 1931. They both lived in the town of Cartersville, Georgia. Carl was the youngest of seven, and he met Sarah, who was two years younger than him, in high school. She played basketball, and he was a cheerleader. And I guess he kind of had a thing for her, and one day he asked if he could ride her home, and she's like, no. And he didn't give up. He's like, well, can I call you? And she said, no, we don't have a phone. Now, this was the 30s, so um, I guess phones were kind of, like, newfangled back then. So he kept asking and kept asking. Finally, she agreed to go out with him. And I'd love to know where their first date was, just because he tried so hard and she kept turning him down. And it was probably, like, the movies or something. So soon after high school, they got married. She was 19. He was 21. He was in the Army, and he served in the States during the Korean War. After the Army, he got a job at the Ford Assembly Plant in Atlanta, then worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. In 1955, he got what was back then a really good job for Delta Airlines. I don't even think that exists anymore, but he was a mechanic for them, and he would rise to the position of manager of the power plant maintenance depot there. In 1965, they adopted a baby boy named Kevin, and in 1967, they adopted a little girl baby named Carla. So they thought that they should get a house in the suburbs to raise their kids, and they got a house in Fayetteville, which was 22 miles south of Atlanta. This town was established in 1822. It's like a middle-class, conservative town made of church-going people in the Bible Belt, and this will become very important in the story. The kids had a good life. The parents made no secret of the fact that they were adopted. Kevin was a really good kid, and he always said how great his parents were. And him and his sister, Carla, were total opposites. Kevin got good grades. He was into music. He played with the church orchestra. Carla was not a good student, she seemed to have no interest in things or any anyway conventional things. Because they were really, really into church, the parents forced the kids to go to church, and they were Baptists. They both sang in the choir, and they were in Sunday school. Parents were known as church leaders, and they were in the choir too. They 
went on what you call mission trips. And from what I understand, you would like go somewhere and do good deeds or help people or stuff like that. Kevin would say later that him and Carla had a normal sibling relationship. You know, his brothers and sisters do. He went to the University of Georgia, which is in Athens. And he said after he left for college, things kind of went downhill at home. Carla was what you would call a rebellious teenager. And to me, this sounds like typical teenage stuff. Her parents didn't like her friends. They said she challenged authority and they used the phrase, ran with the wrong crowd. You know how many times I've heard that in my career? Like a billion. Kevin said that they had, quote, knock down, drag out fights. When she was 15, Carla quit school and ran off with her boyfriend, Gene Harvey. And this Gene apparently was definitely of the wrong crowd. He stole Kevin's identity and this was really rotten of Carla. She gave Gene Kevin's social security number. So he used it to get a driver's license and apparently got in trouble. In January of 1988, he was jailed under Kevin's name. So Kevin, of course, found out about this, wasn't real pleased, and it took him a year and a lawyer's help to get his identity back, you know, get all this fixed. In September of 1988, Gene was convicted of impersonating another in Gwinnett County, Georgia. So Carl moved in with Gene, 30 miles away from Fayetteville, and on March 23, 1989, they had a baby girl they named Holly. Supposedly, they were married, but nobody was really sure. When Holly was about a year and a half old, the whole family was in an accident. I would assume a car accident. And as a result, Jean ended up being a paraplegic. So the stress of this broke up their relationship. Carla and Holly moved in with Carla's parents. And at first, everybody was happy. The grandparents liked having their little granddaughter with them. But Carla would leave Holly with him and go out often all night. And she returned to her um, old habits of being disagreeable. They would argue with her about her lack of responsibility. And finally, they kicked her out. So she got an apartment in Clayton County, which is a neighboring county. She found work as a stripper. She would take Holly to her parents to be babysat if she couldn't find a sitter. In 1993, Carla with four-year-old Holly, moved in with her brother Kevin in his new house. And Kevin recalled that Carla was a pretty shitty mother. She never disciplined Holly. She just let her do whatever she wanted. There was like no structure to her life. She didn't have a bedtime. Holly just kind of ran wild. By 2001, Carla had three DUI convictions. Two of them at the time when Holly was in the car with her, which is definitely not cool. And she did a total of five months in jail. During this time, Holly stayed with Kevin, and he said that she was fine when her mother wasn't around. He, I guess, put his foot down, and he said, okay, these are the rules. If you want to live here, you're going to follow these rules. And he restored order, I guess you could say. But as soon as Carla came back, everything went to shit again. And he said that one night the police had to be called to the house because of a domestic dispute between Holly and her mother. And he's like, that's it. You know, I'm throwing you both out. In April of 2003, Carla ended up selling some marijuana to 
somebody who turned out to be an undercover cop. And she was sentenced to three years in prison. Personally, I think that's kind of excessive, but none of my business. So while her mother was in prison, Holly moved in with her friend named Haley. At the time, she was in middle school. And it was when she was in middle school, around age 13, that she met a girl named Sandy Ketchum. So let's meet Sandy. Sandy is the daughter of Sandra Fay and Tim Ketchum. She was born on April 19th of 1988. When her parents met, Tim was 24 and Sandra was 19. At the time they met, she was already divorced with two kids since she got pregnant with Sandy. Yeah, her the mother's name is Sandra. The daughter is also Sandra, but she's called Sandy. So um, from now on, I'm going to refer to the daughter as Sandy and the mom as Sandra. So then they got married and Tim worked as a truck driver. It was soon obvious that Sandra was quite a shitty mother. She neglected her two kids and baby Sandy. She would leave Sandy sitting around in poopy diapers and hungry. And she would go out late at night and sleep late in the morning and leave her kids unattended. Eventually, family and children's services got involved and they threatened to take Sandy away. Sandra didn't uh, clean up her act. They were supposedly there checking on the two older kids and they noticed that Sandy was sitting there in a poopy diaper. And they said something to Sandra to the effect of, um, you know, your baby needs her diaper changed and she would not change her diaper. And these people insisted. So Sandra then uh, changed her diaper and these people were watching and they saw that Sandy, the baby, had a very severe diaper rash, which supposedly comes from being in dirty diapers. And one time when Tim's sister was there, Sandra didn't know where to find her baby's formula, diapers, and clothes, and she couldn't be bothered to look for them. And the aunt said that this diaper rash was so bad that she took Sandy to a doctor. So Tim found out that his wife was deserting her kids and, quote, running around on him when he was working, driving his truck, so he threw them out. Weeks later, he came home and found a note that said, Tim, come get your baby daughter, and gave somebody's name and address, that he didn't know who this was. So he goes there, and, and uh, there's these strangers, these just random people, and they have Sandy there. And Sandra begged for forgiveness. You know, I'm sorry, please take me back, blah, blah, blah. He said, okay, but only if you behave and, you know, act right from now on. Well, she did for a while, but then went back to her old ways. Eventually, they got divorced. Tim got custody of Sandy. And Sandra, the mom, didn't pay child support. Bother with Sandy, none of that. Then Tim got married again to a woman named Mary. And she was supposedly like a love of his life, a wonderful person. She loved Sandy. Unfortunately, she had an aneurysm and she would have seizures and her personality changed and her health became so bad that she had to live in with her mother and be cared for like full time. 
and Tim got divorced again. So three years after that, he marries a woman named Tracy. Sandy at the time was a preteen. And Tim said that when he looks back, he thinks that Tracy was just like a uh, gold digger, like she just wanted a husband. And in uh, December of 1999, she had Tim's other baby, a girl named Peyton, who would be Sandy's half-sister. So Tim noticed that she bullied Sandy and favored her own kid, and he caught her physically abusing Sandy. When she was 13, Sandy decided that she would had enough of this, and she ran away. Tim found her, and she said she couldn't stand being abused by her stepmother anymore. So Tim took her, and they got all their shit, and they moved in with Tim's mom, and he got another divorce. He needed hernia surgery, and he fell behind on child support for Peyton. That's I know we're getting all these kids and all these wives. It's getting kind of hard to keep track. It's kind of like a soap opera. But this will be Peyton, his daughter with with Tracy. So then he met Beth, who would be um, Warren number four. She's wife number four. Yeah, and she invited Tim and Sandy to move in with her after only a few weeks. So they move into her apartment in the town of Griffin, and then they go back to Fayetteville. According to Tim, he said that when they moved back to Fayetteville, quote, all hell broke loose. Apparently, when she went to school, Sandy fell in with the proverbial wrong crowd, and this crowd was into smoking weed, staying out late, and skipping class. Sandy didn't study or do homework, but she still got good grades. She was caught with diet pills, and she was supposedly suspended three times from school due to having drugs. I don't exactly know what kind of drugs. They said that she was sometimes moody, but sometimes she was okay, which is quite typical of a teenager. Come to think of it, kind of typical of anybody. Isn't everybody sometimes in a bad mood and sometimes they're okay? So they put her in a rehab, but she ran away from there. And then she went to a juvenile detention center. Of all of Sandy's friends, meaning this wrong crowd, there was only one that Tim and Beth liked, and that was Holly. She said that she was pretty little girl, and Holly and Sandy spent many nights together at each other's houses. At this time, they were both 13. What Tim and Beth didn't know was that the Colliers, you know, Holly's grandparents, didn't approve of Sandy, and they said that Holly was not allowed to hang around with Sandy. Um, I guess to the Colliers, Sandy was the wrong crowd. So we have this kind of, you're going to see this dynamic going on, where each family, meaning you have Tim and Beth, who are Sandy's parents, and you have the Colliers, who are Holly's grandparents, they each think that the other kid is the bad one, is the bad influence on their daughter or granddaughter. So the girls ran away to Sandra's house, and this, of course, is Sandy's mother, birth mother, who lives in Griffin. Sarah, Sarah Collier, called Beth, and um, she said, you know, we don't really like the two girls hanging out together or talking, and it was that, before that, that the next week they ran off together. 
So Sarah called Beth again, and she said to Beth, um, do you know that these girls say that they're lesbian lovers? And Beth asked her, well, what would possess you to say such a thing? And Sarah said, well, Holly told me. So while Sandy was in school, Beth nebbed in her bedroom, I think it's kind of rude, and found some love letters and love poems that Sandy had written or exchanged with Holly. And she then confronted her. She's like, you know, what's up with this? And Sandy said she was bisexual. So Beth said, well, maybe it's like a phase. Maybe it's like your hormones and you don't really know, you know, what, what's going on. And Sandy's like, no, I know exactly what I am. And I love Holly. Beth said, well, we will love you no matter what, but this type of sexual behavior won't be tolerated in this house. I'm really, really biting my tongue right now. Needless to say, Sandy wasn't too pleased with this, and her dad, Tim, was supposedly stunned at this revelation, but he also said that he would still love Sandy no matter what. So Sandy comes up with this plan. She says she wants to move in with her birth mother, Sandra, and have a relationship. Well, Tim and Beth aren't real happy with this, and they remind her of what a shitty mother Sandra had been. They're like, she has six kids, all different dads, and, you know, we're not real happy with this idea. They talk to Sandy's probation officer about it, and the PO said to their, probably their consternation, you know, doesn't sound like such a bad idea to me. Why don't you let her give it a try? So Sandy's packing up her stuff to take to her mother's house, and she asked Beth, her stepmom, can you help me find a suitcase? And Beth said, find your own suitcase, which is pretty childish, I think. They take her to Sandra's house, and they notice how gross her house is. They have dogs, and the dogs have pooped and peed all over. Apparently, Sandra has a problem cleaning up poop and pee from any kind of children that she has. So it was when Sandy was staying with her birth mother, Sandra, that the crime would occur. A little bit more about Holly and Sandy's relationship. The kind of stuff they did was they would skip school, hang out in the woods, smoke weed, and cuddle. And apparently they also got into, like, quote, harder drugs like meth and speed. During the summer of 2008, Kevin and his dad worked in the mornings painting houses. And Carl had been telling Kevin about the problems they'd been having with Holly. On July 26th, Holly was due in juvenile court, and her grandparents took her for a hearing, and the judge ordered her to have random drug testing and not to associate with anybody else under court supervision, which, of course, would be Sandy. And she was ordered to attend a three-week program for troubled teens. She was given an additional three months probation. So apparently Holly, in a pissy mood, stormed outside, lit a cigarette, and put the cigarette out on her grandfather's truck, which of course is extremely rude, and I can see why somebody would take offense to that. So Carl, like, exploded. He grabbed her by the arm and shook her, and he's like, something to the effect of, you know, I'm going to march you right back inside. 
So her grandmother came to her defense and said, no, leave Holly alone. She's been through enough today. Let's just go home. And then Holly said, quote, I'm going to kill y'all, end quote. Was this just a typical teenager that's mad and just says something or should have been taken more seriously? That's really hard to say. I, kn- I personally have never been so mad at somebody that I've said, I'm going to kill you. But I've heard of people that do say that, just kind of comes out of their mouth. So I don't know. But a couple days later, Carl told his son, Kevin, about their concerns about Holly. And Kevin was kind of worried. He said, well, if anything seems suspicious or out of the ordinary, call 911. But on the other hand, he thought it was probably just Holly being a, like a smart ass. You know how teenagers are. He knew that she was sneaky and that she would sneak out of the house. So Carla, her mother, wrote to her from prison. She commiserated with Holly having to live with her grandparents. And she said, I'm sorry for what they're putting Holly through. Reinforcing the idea that these people are terrible and what they are expecting of you is too much. And in reality, the grandparents' only rules were stay home, don't sneak out during the night. And remember, Holly was 15. So don't smoke in the house. Don't smoke weed in the house. None of those are unreasonable. I've had a couple dudes have lived with me and they both smoked. And I had a rule that they were not allowed to smoke in the house because I have asthma. So they knew that they, if they wanted to smoke, they had to go on the porch. And there was never any problem with that. That just you know, if you're staying with somebody that you respect their wishes. They had another, I don't know if it was so much a rule, but they wanted Holly to go to church with them. And I'll talk about that later, but that's the only rule that I can understand. Definitely, if that was me, I would have a problem with. Holly got a letter from Sandy, because remember, they're not supposed to be having contact. And Sandy said, quote, I love you so fucking much that it drives me crazy not to be with you every day. I mean, damn, what do I have to do? End quote. And then she wrote a poem because Sandy was actually a poet. Her poems were pretty good, actually. And she wrote a poem to Holly. And one of the lines was, quote, I wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living or should I just blast myself? End quote. So, Monday, August 2nd. Sarah was planning to go to Hawaii for, like, a a much-needed break. And she said to one of her friends that Holly was, quote, killing us. She's like, she smokes weed, sleeps all day, and sneaks out at night. Holly had the basement bedroom of the Collier house. So, she would stay down there in her bedroom and do whatever she did. And they were upstairs and... It was like they were living separate lives. Now, before we get into the murder, I'm going to take a little break. And I want to play something for you from my friends Jen and Cam. They have a true crime podcast called Our True Crime Podcast. And here they are. Last year, there were nearly 22,000 murders in the U.S. Not surprisingly, more than 200 true crime podcasts launch every year in the U.S. alone. There's no shortage of crimes and no shortage of crime podcasts to cover them. But none of those shows have the heart of our true crime podcast. 
thank goodness. Well, hell, mm-hmm. they didn't even have seatbelt laws back then. They never wore seatbelt. Yeah, it's fine. He could not remember exactly what happened and thought that he had blacked out. That was about it. That's all he could tell oh, officers. No. He was drawing things, saying the, the thoughts won't stop. I want to see, see how this plays out. It's heartbreaking. Isn't it time you made our true crime podcast your true crime podcast? Our true crime podcast, available on all your favorite podcasting apps. So listen to them. They're really good. They just did Mr. Kroll, the troll, recently also. As usual, when there's more than one perpetrator, there are usually at least two different versions of what happened. And the version I'm going to go by is the one that Holly told her judge whenever she was sentenced. And her judge questioned her for about half an hour before he accepted her plea deal about exactly what went on before, during, and after the crime. And Holly's version is, um, and I'm not the only person who thinks this from what I've read, it's pretty heavy on blaming Sandy for stuff. But I'm just going to tell you what she said to the judge, and then we can discuss in detail later about what's the more likely story of, you know, how this came about and, and who was responsible for what. Now, this guilty plea and sentencing happened on April 7th of 2005, and the judge involved was named Pascal English. And what's notable about him is he was on quite a famous TV show called Survivor. You may have seen it, where they have they take the people and they strand them on some island. And it, it's crazy because I've seen every episode of that, I think. He was on, like... I want to say it's season four or one one of the earlier ones, and I just totally don't remember him. I do have a picture of him in my social media, and it's not him dressed in his judge's attire at the bench. It's one of him being a survivor. So I thought that was kind of interesting to note. Holly told him that the night before the murder, her and Hall, her and Sandy went to friend's house to do drugs and the judge kind of pushed like he wanted a name you know who's his friend blah 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 she finally said that his name was kelvin he was like an older dude she didn't know his last name she said he was one of her mother's drug friends that's how she knew him and supposedly this kelvin came picked up the girls and took them to his place where they did crack and later he took them home Eventually, it came out, they questioned Carla, and she gave up Kelvin's last name, so they arrested him. The dude was 41 years old, and my thoughts are, I mean, if you're probably sitting there thinking the same thing, I was 41 not too long ago, and I can't imagine being that old, hanging out with my friends, I didn't smoke crack, but, and saying, hey, let's call up Holly and Sandy, you know, the 15-year-old girls. Who does that? That's just weird. According to Holly, he brought them back to Holly's house at 5.30 in the morning. And she later told her judge that they sat around in her bedroom all day listening to music. And this is directly from the transcripts. Holly said, quote, Well, Sandy was like, we should take their truck 
and we can get something to calm us down. I said, I didn't mean anything by it, but I was like, we'd have to kill them to do that. But I didn't mean anything. Then she was like, well, we can hit them in the head with a lamp. And I was like, well, that might just make them pass out. Then they will wake up. She was like, go get a knife. So I had went and got a knife and she was like, she had stabbed the bed to see if it was going to be sharp enough. She said it was sharp enough, end quote. And the judge said, Yun's practiced stabbing. She said, quote, Sandra did. The judge said, how many knives were there? Holly said, one at first, then after it started, then I called her to help me. Holly says that she got this knife from the kitchen, and she just said she took the biggest one that she could find. The judge asked what they did all day, and Holly said they sat around in her room and listened to music, and the judge said, what kind of music? What difference does it make? Who cares what kind of music? But Holly said, well, R&B and rap. And I was half, in, half expecting for the media to make a case out of whatever types of music they were listening to. Like, uh, who, who did we do recently that was listening to Insane Clown Posse? Oh, uh, The Murder of Matt Silliman. Remember, one of those kids liked that group, and the media kind of made a big deal of it. And I, I was waiting for some headlines, like, teens listen to, I don't know, fill in the blank, heavy metal before killing grandparents or something, but nothing Nothing was made of, of that statement. Then Holly said, quote, Sandy had told me to get them to come down there. So I had started smoking in the house so they would come downstairs. The judge said, what was going to happen if they came downstairs? Holly, then Sandy had told me when they come down here, start stabbing them. The judge said, at this point, you've already decided you were going to kill them. Holly, yes, sir. Judge, why did you want to kill them? Had they ever done anything to you other than raise you? This is kind of mysterious. Holly says, quote, Only the family knows. My grandmother used to scream at me and tell me all kinds of things. The judge said, what kind of things? Holly said, quote, She used to tell me that the only reason that I lived there was because so I didn't go to Department of Family and Children's Services. And when I was like 10, she used to call me a slut. And my grandfather, he hit me. Um, and now just for the record, there's no mention anywhere of Holly's grandfather or grandmother ever laying a hand on her. So the judge says, was this why you decided to kill them? And she says, no. After going around for a little bit, she said it was for Sandy. And he said, why? She said, I don't know. And the judge said, you do know. Tell me. And Holly said, so that we could be together. And the judge said, what do you mean be together? And Holly said, so we could leave. Then she described the actual murder. And Holly said, they said they needed to get a suitcase because my grandmother was going to Hawaii. So I let them in, and my grandfather was in the closet, and I closed my eyes. Pause. And the judge said, closed your eyes and did what? Holly, I stabbed my grandmother. So according to her, her grandfather was in the closet getting a suitcase. Her grandmother was standing beside the bed. 
Holly had a knife, the biggest one she could find in the kitchen, hidden like in the rack of her pants. And Sandy was kind of hidden behind the bed. So when her grandmother turned her back to Holly, she said, quote, that's when I remembered what Sandy said. So I closed my eyes and I stabbed her, end quote. She estimated maybe she stabbed her like three times. So she said she screamed, Sarah did, and then her grandpa turned. She said, quote, they were cussing and he had come and punched me in the face and then he had me pinned down. So I was stabbing him, I guess, in the in the chest and I had called Sandy to help me, end quote. The grandfather ran upstairs and Sandy, according to Holly, said, give me the knife. And Holly said, quote, so I gave her the knife and she stayed downstairs with my grandmother and I was standing there and she said, go get him. And at first I was like, no, she said, go get him. He's going to call 911. So I had ran upstairs and he had the phone in his hand. Then I had pulled the cord out of the wall. Then he had ran, grabbed a knife, and I thought he was going to stab me. But I took the knife from my grandpa and I closed my eyes and I just started stabbing my grandpa real fast. Then the last time that I stabbed my grandpa, a lot of blood came on me. Like somebody just poured a big old bucket of hot water on me. So I had let go and I opened my eyes and he staggered and he walked around the kitchen island and he fell on the kitchen floor, end quote. She said when she looked down, she had noticed that she'd stabbed him in the neck. I guess this was supposed to be like pin the tail on the donkey or hit the pinata where you close your eyes and you stab and you see what you hit. Does anybody else believe that? Okay, that that's... Yeah, that uh, sounds pretty ridiculous. She said, quote, when we got in the truck, she told me that she was stabbing my grandma in the heart and in the back of the head and that she had cut some of the skin of her arm, end quote. And the judge said, well, where did Jens go? And Holly said, quote, we just started driving. Apparently they wanted to go to Calvin's, you know, their older drug dealing friend, but he wasn't home. So they went to the house of a girl named Sarah that Sandy had been friends with for a few years. Sarah would later say that she knew Sandy and Holly were, quote, doing drugs 24-7, end quote. And she knew that they did marijuana laced with cocaine and also marijuana dipped in embalming fluid, which is disgusting. So Sandy called Sarah and said, we're coming over. She said, we're covered in blood because they got jumped and had to clean up. And Sarah really didn't know what was going on. She didn't believe this got jumped story, but she didn't want any part of whatever it was that they were up to. She said, no, don't come over here. But they came over anyway. This was about 6 p.m. So Sarah goes outside to meet them, and she said they were, quote, drenched in blood and they stunk, end quote. You know, like, blood has that Tinky like metallic smell. Sandy said that they were attacked. And then Holly just came out and said, no, we killed my grandparents. And Sarah was like, you killed your grandparents? Why? And they didn't really give an explanation. But Sandy said that they were, quote, all cracked out. So Sarah, understandably, didn't want them in her house. Or like I said, she didn't want any part of this. She gave them a towel that they kind of wiped themselves on. 
Then they changed their clothes and left. So just then Sarah's parents came home. She was real upset. She told them what happened. So her mom called 911, and this is the first that law enforcement was aware of this. A sheriff's deputy came to Sarah's house and took a statement, and they told her to call back the number that, uh, you know, do the star 69 thing return call that Sandy called her on. And somehow they figured out it, it was Holly's grandmother's phone. And they found out her name and address. And then, of course, they sent people over to the Collier's house, which was on Plantation Drive. I looked it up on Google Maps, and there's no longer a house there. It looks like it's a greenhouse. So there's all these law enforcement officers there. And, of course, Kevin comes. And he notices that his dad's truck is missing. And he says, Holly must have done this. And he told the cops that were there about the trouble that his parents had been having with Holly and how she, you know, her mom was in jail and so forth. When the officers entered the house, they found Carl laying face down in a pool of coagulated blood. And the wall phone was like right by his head. This is in the kitchen. Sarah's body was found part way down the stairs, face up in a large pool of dried blood. Holly's bedroom still smelled of weed, and the detectives figured out that whatever had occurred, the struggle had started there, which of course we know that it did. By 8.30, there were a whole bunch of detectives and crime scene there. So they were trying to figure out where the girls would go. And somebody took note of all the beach pictures in Holly's room. And they took guess that they were headed for the beach. They got the U.S. Marshall Fugitive Task Force involved. And they started using their sophisticated equipment to trace the phone. You know, the Sarah's cell phone that Holly took with her. At about 1.15 a.m., they found the cell phone near the town of Pooler on I-16, headed southeast. So they figured that they were right. They were headed towards the shore. Two detectives flew to Daytona Beach, anticipating that that's where they were headed. During the autopsy the next day, Carl was found to have one of his ears partially amputated and a six and a half centimeter slash wound on his neck plus another gaping wound on his neck. He had eight superficial and deep stab wounds to the face, head, and neck, and nine more in his chest and back, with the cause of death exsanguination. Sarah's findings were similar. She had multiple stab wounds in her head, neck, chest, abdomen, and both upper arms. The, I guess you call it fatal blow, entered her right shoulder, transecting the right axillary artery, and led to, quote, massive exsanguinating hemorrhage and her death. So in layman's terms, they were hacked to death. It was, in the words of everybody who was there, a very brutal, bloody scene. In the meantime, Sandy and Holly decide to go to Tybee Island, which is one of the coastal islands off of Georgia, near Jekyll Island and Hilton Head. So they get to Tybee Island, which is little over a four-hour drive. Holly was driving. I don't think she had a license, but at this point, driving without a license is the least of her worries. So they're driving around. 
on the island, and they run into these brothers. Brett was 15, and Brian was 22. They asked them for a cigarette, and they parked, and they started walking with the boys. They said their names were Casey and Crystal, with Casey being Holly and Crystal being Sandy. The boys told them that they just moved to Tybee Island because their mom was tired of the crime in their old neighborhood, which the irony here is is just too much. They moved to get away from crime, and they literally run into two murderers on the run on the beach. So Holly asked them if they could help them, quote, get rid of the truck, and the boys said, no, we're, we're new here. We don't know where anything is. Then Holly showed them some jewelry that she wanted to pawn. She said it belonged to her recently deceased grandmother, which is technically true. She's very recently deceased because Holly just killed her. So she asked Brian, the older one, if they could stay with them for the night because they don't have any money or place to stay. And he goes, yeah, I guess, but only for the night. Brian said that later he thought, quote, it was kind of weird that someone would come to a beach resort with no money or a place to crash, end quote. The boys said of Holly and Sandy that, quote, they were clearly lesbians. They described Sandy as, quote, butchy. They were real suspicious of the girls. They didn't really want them in their house. They asked them if anything was wrong. And Holly said they, quote, had a lot on their mind. So Brian, the older one, said, well, Yens can sleep on the mattress in the bedroom that's over the open carport area. And they said they immediately collapsed on the mattress in each other's arms. So he called his mom at work and he said, you know, we met these girls on the beach. Can they stay? And their mom, Patricia, said, hell no. And she's like, you know, Yens better get these girls out of here. We don't even know them. But the boys are like, they are just totally comatose. They're fast asleep. So the next morning, the mother, Patricia, got up and she saw Holly and Sandy come out of the bedroom. And she gave uh, Brian, the older kid, she chewed him a new asshole. And they told her that they both got, quote, bad vibes from them and that something was not right with them. And they were, quote, up to something. So Patricia's like, get those girls out of the house now. Holly asked Patricia if she knew where there was a pawn shop. And Patricia said, quote, good gracious, no. And she explained that they just got to the island. They didn't know where anything was. Holly said that her grandmother died, quote, a couple months ago, and she wanted to sell her jewelry. Patricia told Brian, the older one, that something is not right with these girls and to, quote, get them the hell out. She thought they were runaways, which I guess they kind of were. And everybody observed that Holly was obviously the one in charge. Sandy was, quote, really, really quiet and clinging. At about 11 o'clock in the morning, they saw a helicopter over the house. And they noticed Holly and Sandy look at each other like, oh, shit. So, of course, it was the marshals. And they drove around the beach. They have the equipment that they're tracking the cell phone signal with. Soon they see the uh, Carl's truck and it's a bright blue. You can't miss it. They narrow the signal down to three houses, which are like grouped together. So they're like, oh, I guess we're just going to have to try each house. So they bust in the first one and it turned out to be the wrong one. 
poor woman probably like shit herself. Then they start coming to the next house and Brett, the younger brother, was watching out the window and he figures that they're there for the girls. So he goes outside and asks them if they're looking for two girls. And the cops are like, yeah, where are they? And he said, quote, they're here. We just met them on the beach last night. So they go in the house. They made the boys get on the floor and they said, where are the girls? And they pointed to the door. I don't know if they were hiding or if they legitimately thought that they could hide or get away from That's, I mean, who knows what they were thinking at this point. So they go in the bedroom and they found Holly and Sandy huddled together. And they handcuffed them and throw them onto the mattress and said, you're under arrest for the murders of Carl and Sarah Collier. They found a knife on Sandy and Holly was squirming like she was trying to get out of her handcuffs. Again, no idea what she thought she was trying to accomplish. And Bruce Jordan, one of the deputies, said, quote, you ain't fighting your grandma now, so just settle down. The consensus was that Holly acted kind of surprised at the number of cops and that she laughed when she was being let out of the house. And somebody used the word giddy, that she seemed like she was giddy from all of the attention. Like, kind of like, wow, look at all these police here to arrest me. I'm like a badass. You know, I'm, I'm really cool. So they took both of the girls to the Tybee Island Police Station, which was a short drive away. And Holly asked her uh, escort about her, you know, do they know anything about her case? And apparently they didn't really. And she came up with the disturbing question, quote, did they die all the way? Referring, of course, to her grandparents. I don't know if, if she somehow thought that they survived the massacre. Again, it's hard to tell what was going on in their brains at that time. As soon as they got them to the police station, read them their rights, fingerprinted them, all that stuff, they separated them and started to question them. And it became immediately apparent that Sandy was going to cooperate and tell them everything, and Holly was going to be difficult. And the officer assigned to Holly said, do you want to talk to me? And Holly said, no. And he said, that's fine. I don't want to talk to you either, bitch. Both the girls talked to a jail psychologist. And what they said is worth noting. Holly was, quote, tearful. And she claimed that her grandparents had been hitting her and that she was defending herself. There's absolutely no evidence for this. It makes me wonder if she was trying to establish a defense of self-defense or maybe mental, mental instability. She admitted that she smoked 15 to 20 blunts a day, you know, marijuana cigarettes. And I'm doing this and I'm like, where the fuck are these girls getting all this money for all these drugs? Neither one of them has a job and I've never bought them, but um, weed and crack and meth and, uh, you know, stuff's not cheap. So that baffles me. But anyway... She said that she had had crack over the weekend, but unwittingly. She said somebody had put it in her marijuana cigarette, unbeknownst to her. She claimed that she had attempted suicide in the past, like that she had cut her wrist, but not deep enough to require stitches. And she said that, and the way I, 
the way I say it, it sounds like I don't believe it, and I, I guess I kind of don't. Everything that comes out of Holly's mouth, you have to kind of take with a grain of salt. But she claimed that she had been scheduled to see a therapist before the murders. And the words she used were to get a bipolar diagnosis. I don't know what that means, really. And the counselor asked her something to the effect of, well, what do you think of that? And Holly said, quote, I think it's bullshit. She said that she had problems sleeping and had recurrent nightmares. And this is interesting. One of the nightmares she recently had, this is before the murders, is that she pushed an old woman, quote, who fell and busted her head, end quote. And then she said, maybe I knew I was going to kill my grandma. In this psychological report, her thought process was noted as restless. She was found to have no delusions or hallucinations. Her mood was anxious and she was cooperative. And the whoever was doing the interview, and we'll talk about this later, I thought the exact same thing, conduct disorder. You know, I'm not a psychologist of any kind, but that one is kind of obvious. Sandy was a little bit different, well, a lot different. She said that she couldn't remember if she was high or not during the time of the murder. She said she didn't remember a lot of it. She said, quote, everything happened so fast. And she cried throughout the interview. She said she wished she was dead. She'd given up hope for life and she wanted to kill herself. And she was put on suicide watch in the jail. She claimed that she had OD'd two years ago and cut herself on the wrist about nine times and that she had had counseling in the past. She was currently on medication for depression, bipolar, and sleeping problems. This is a little strange because she's 15 or 16 at the time. And I think I've mentioned before how unusual I think it is for kids that young to be diagnosed as bipolar. But, well, I mean, like I said, I'm not a psychiatrist. So she said that she didn't have a good relationship with her stepmom, Beth, which would be the current stepmom. And she claimed that Beth called her a bitch. And she said that her parents always told her, quote, she would never be anything and that she is going to be trash, just like her mother, end quote. She said that she still had nightmares about her second stepmother's abuse and that she lost her temper easily and had trouble concentrating. She also suffered from chest pain and headaches. Just as an interesting side note, headaches, backaches, and stomach aches that can't be found to have like a concrete cause are the most common psychosomatic ailments. She had no delusions or hallucinations and like I said she was on suicide watch. On the way to Fayetteville, which is where they're from, they're in, in separate cars, Holly was quiet but Sandy cried and said she quote kept smelling blood and was quote reliving it every five minutes, meaning the murder, I suppose, and, quote, those people didn't deserve to die. When she got to jail, Sandy called her stepmother, Beth, and it, you know, like all phone calls from jails and prisons, it was recorded. And Beth said, tell me what happened, you know, like during the crime. And Sandy said, well, we were at Holly's house, and we were doing drugs, and things got out of hand, and Holly's grandparents got killed, killed, K-I-L-T, that's um, I, I guess it's like a southern dialect. And we stole Holly's grandfather's truck and ran, and we got picked up. Notice the wording, got killed, or got killed. 
not we killed Holly's grandparents or Holly killed her grandparents or I killed Holly's grandparents, but they got killed. And this is a common thing that criminals do to avoid responsibility. Beth asked Sandy if she had killed anybody. Sandy said no. And then she continued her story. She said, Holly and her grandmother got into an argument and her grandpa came down and then they both got on top of Holly and Holly yelled for help. So Sandy jumped up, saw Holly stabbing her grandmother, and then Sandy, quote, got into a wrestling match with them, and quote, and tried to take the knife from Holly. Holly was under her grandmother yelling that she couldn't breathe and for her grandmother to get off of her. Sandy said that she stabbed Sarah in the arm and head. Then Holly chased her grandfather upstairs and Sandy heard, quote, all the hollering and screaming, end quote, and went up to see what was happening, ran into the kitchen. Carl threw a mug at her, or at one of them. Then Holly stabbed him, quote, one more time in the neck and he fell to the floor dead, end quote. Then they came downstairs. They found Sarah at the foot of the stairs, and Holly was screaming, she's not dead. And Sandy was insisting, no, she is dead. And according to Sandy, Holly then stabbed her grandmother some more and said, quote, this fat bitch won't die, end quote. Then they packed some stuff and left. And Sandy said that she didn't remember a whole lot after that, due to the stress, you know, the trauma of the activity and the drugs. This case got a lot of media attention all over the world. In fact, it was in People magazine. It was all over the newspaper everywhere. And I found a quote online in one of the newspapers. It was like a letter to the editor. You know how they have that section, people write in and comment on stuff. And this one really, really struck me, and I thought, I have to share this quote with the class. This is from somebody in the neighborhood that Holly and Sandy lived, and they're commenting on the crime. Quote, The Apostle Paul was correct in his letter to the church at Rome when he said that these people were evil before they were sexually deviant. End quote. By these people, the person means homosexuals. And I was like, holy shit, what was this, 2008, and people still think that way? Um, I find that very disturbing for a number of reasons, and uh, hopefully you do too. But keep in mind, when we talk about psychology and why they did this, that this is the kind of people who they grew up surrounded by, is people with this type of attitude. And this quote that I just read I just picked this one because it was so um, disgusting, may I, may I dare to say. But I did read all of the letters in the newspaper, and I'd say like 98% of them were like in agreement with this person. Carla, Holly's mother, told the media that she didn't feel that she was responsible for Holly's actions. She said she did her best to raise Holly as a single mother, but it was hard, and that her parents helped. She went on to say that being a parent was the hardest job a person could have, and she gave it her all. She said, quote, Her actions were her doing, and I can't hold myself responsible for that. You raise your children up, but they get to a point where they make their own decisions, end quote. And she said that she'd give Holly love and emotional support during her incarceration. Kevin... Holly's uncle and the son of the victims said that they had loved Holly unconditionally. He said, quote, they loved her to death. 
They would do anything for her. They would watch her whenever she needed to be watched. They would take her anywhere she needed to go. This is one part of the closure that I need and the family needs. Time will heal certain things. There's nothing we can do to bring my parents back, but time will heal the tensions and the feelings that I have for Holly, end quote. Sheriff Randall Johnson said, quote, I've never seen it more cruel than this one, end quote, meaning the crime scene, the murder. He thought that Holly and Sandy had killed for money, to get money from the Colliers. Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Jordan of the Fayette County Sheriff's Department, who was in, in on this from the get-go, he said, well, in his opinion, Holly was emotionally distraught by her forced separation from Sandy. And he said, quote, she wished for everyone to suffer the way she suffered, end quote. And then he said, quote, I believe the evidence at trial will be that the motive was to gain freedom and be able to stay together ever forever, end quote. And he claimed that Sandy told him, quote, we just wanted to be together. Those people didn't deserve to die, end quote. Tim, Sandy's dad, told the media, quote, I can't explain it. I'm not that type of person. I didn't raise her to be that type of person. I want to say that to the community that I'm very sorry this happened, end quote. And Sandy's attorney, Lloyd Walker, blamed the system. He said, quote, the evidence shows that a lot of people have failed Sandy. Up until now, everybody, including the state, has failed this child, end quote. And the Collier's pastor, Reverend Glenn Stringham, said, quote, many times they could have thrown up their hands and said, I quit. They chose basically to give their life to their granddaughter because of their love for her, end quote. And a family friend of the Colliers said, quote, they loved Holly and wanted to provide a wholesome home for her, but she couldn't live under the rules and the rules. Come home at night, no drinking, no smoking pot or cigarettes in the house weren't that strict, end quote. And the people involved said that supposedly and take this how you want it i you know it's up to you if you believe it or not i personally don't believe this but supposedly holly and sandy were forbidden from seeing each other not because of their sexuality but because each parent or grandparent of the one kid thought that the other kid was a bad influence so the girls were denied bond they were going to be charged as adults their first appearance before a magistrate was on August 5th, and they had bulletproof vests on, and supposedly they both sobbed during the uh, hearing. They were put in two separate detention centers, and now we're going to go back, take it back a little bit, to Holly's guilty plea on April 7th. And she told the judge about them going to Tybee Island and being captured. She was sentenced to two life sentences to be eligible, eligible for parole 20 years from then. And the judge said to her, what do you think ought to be done to you? And Holly said, quote, I think I should be dead. And the judge said, well, we both agree on that, but the posture of the law is that a juvenile cannot be sentenced to death, end quote. And Holly's attorney thought that that was rude of the judge. And he said, quote, in the 30 years I've been doing this, I've tried to think of another case that I have been involved with that was as brutally savage as this one, and I've seen some hardened criminals come through court. And yet a 15-year-old little girl comes in front of me 
and admits to savagely killing the people she lives with. And I can tell you this, I can't think of another case in the 30 years that has been as nonsensical or as brutal as this. I think your description of the blood all over you, like being drenched with warm water or a bucket of warm water, is very descriptive of what went on that day. I can tell you this, and you won't remember this. You probably won't remember any of this once you get off into the prison system. If there was another alternative, a harsher alternative for sentencing you, I'm sure Mr. Ballard, the DA, would be requesting that. You were fortunate, and you were just a little too young for the full force of the law to be invoked. I say you're lucky. It may be worse that you spend the rest of your life, or a lot of your life, in prison. I don't know. And then he goes on with with some just blah, blah, blah. He asks, as they usually do, judges say, is there anything else that you would like to say? And Holly said, quote, I just hope that everybody can forgive me, end quote. Holly's own lawyer commented that she thought that Holly minimized her culpability in the murder. And that's exactly what I think. If you remember early, from earlier when she was describing the murder, she was like, Sandy this and Sandy that. And there was no, you know, I this or I that. It was always Sandy, Sandy, Sandy. When Sandy sentenced, she goes before a judge called well, and it took like 10 minutes, I think. It was, it was just, you know, do you understand your rights? Do you understand your plea? Blah, blah, blah. Sandy did make a statement after she was sentenced. And she said, quote, I just like to say, that if everything were right and I could take their place and pay back them my life, I wouldn't think twice, and I'm real sorry that this happened, end quote. Sandy got the same sentence as Holly, life with the possibility of parole in 14 years. Holly is in the Pulaski State Prison in Hawkinsville, Georgia, and she's supposedly been doing programs and seeing therapists, which is definitely a good thing. According to her attorney, her state of mind is, quote, pretty good, but she has not yet accepted responsibility for killing her grandparents. Most of the information I got for this case was from a book by Kevin McMurray called If You Really Loved Me, and it's an excellent book. It, it tells you everything about the girl's background and the crime and the aftermath, everything you'd want to know, basically. So if you want to know more about this case, I would highly recommend that. But the author tried to get in touch with both Holly and Sandy, and he couldn't get hold of Holly. Her mother, Carla, wouldn't respond to any messages, but she did say that Holly was being mistreated and slandered by the media. And supposedly because of Holly's age at the time that he wrote to her, she was not allowed, I guess, outside mail or contact with him. Sandy is in the Arendelle State Prison, and the author of this book sent her a letter with a bunch of questions, which she did answer and replied back. So what she has to say is quite interesting. She says that she wasn't able to sleep due to nightmares and flashbacks about the murder and that she kept smelling blood. You know how blood has that like kind of a metallic iron smell. And that really is a thing, olfactory hallucinations. It's when you, well, you smell something that's not really there. She says that when she gets out, she would like to be a counselor for kids and that she really wishes 
that she was killed instead of the collier. I saw, saw that a number of times where she said something to that effect. She writes poetry, which she hopes to get published one day. Now, this is her account of the murder. Quote, I had to get out of there, so I said, let's steal the truck tonight and leave. But then she turned around and said, I just want to kill him. I laughed it off because I didn't think she was for real. When it went down, I guess that's when I believed her. I was beside the bed, scared to death. She kept calling my name and calling my name, and I just kept laying there. Then she cried out for help one more time. So I jumped up and seen what was happening and tried to stop them by yelling, crying, and screaming, Y'all need to stop. Please stop. But they looked at me like I didn't exist. Then I tried to get the knife from Holly, so I struggled with that. Then I stabbed her grandmother twice, once in the arm and once in the head, I really felt like I had no choice to do what I did. It was like I blanked out because after I stabbed her, it was like I couldn't do anything, see, move, talk, and even breathe. When I snapped out of it, I noticed that Holly and her grandmother were gone, and the only place they could have went was up the stairs. So I ran up the stairs, and about the time I turned to go where they were, that's when I saw them. Her grandfather throws a green glass cup at me, so I turned my head so it wouldn't hit me in the face. And about the time I turned back around, that's when Holly stabbed her grandfather in the neck. Then he stumbled to the island in the kitchen, put his hand on the counter, looked at me and said, oh shit, and fell right in front of me. Then I blanked out again. When I came out of it, Holly was running back to the kitchen and I said, let's get the hell out of here. So we ran downstairs and on the way down, her grandmother was laying at the bottom of the stairs. And I told Holly, your grandmother is still breathing. Leave her alone and let's get the hell out of here. She went down there and tried to stab her in the stomach and said, This bitch is too fat. It won't go in. So she stabbed her in the chest heart area. Then we got our stuff and ran out the door and got into the truck and left. We drove to Sarah's because we were scared to get out of the truck anywhere. And we wiped off the blood with a wet towel and asked her where we could find some weed in the midst of Holly telling her what just happened. I was almost speechless. The drive to Tybee was scary as hell. I had never driven on the interstate before. I was shaking like I was having a seizure. I was having hot flashes, and I didn't even get high off the weed we smoked. I was scared to death, and my mind was blown. Holly was kicked back in the seat like nothing happened, and all I kept saying was that we were we were going to prison for the rest of our lives. But she kept saying, no, we're not. End quote. She says she's genuinely sorry for what happened. And this quote's kind of interesting. I don't blame all this on Holly, but I feel as if she did influence me to help her. So let's talk about psychology. As you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist, etc., etc. I'm not trained in any of that. So this is just my opinion and only my opinion. If you've listened to me talk about either group homicides or couple homicides before, or actually any type of crimes in which more than one person is involved, you know my theory, and I've never not seen this happen, where there's always a leader and there's always a follower. It doesn't take Freud to figure out that Holly was the leader in this duo. She was the dominant personality, the stronger personality. Sandy was definitely more of a passive, dependent personality. And this was before the murder, just like in their general relationship. This was during the planning and commission of the murder. 
and also after the murder. I don't know if you remember, I'll remind you again, that the boys, the brothers that they met on Tybee Island, one of them commented that the one girl, meaning Sandy, seemed really shy and kind of clinging on to the other one, which would be Holly. And they said that Holly, like, seemed to be in charge of the two of them. I think that Holly is definitely the more dangerous, unstable, and disturbed of the two. If I had to make a prediction, I would predict that when they eventually get out of prison, Sandy will, well, she has been diagnosed as mentally ill, but I think if she keeps taking her medicine and stays in treatment for both mental health and substance abuse problems, that she will be okay. Holly, I'm not sure about because she seems to have demonstrated from a very young age that she can't follow rules. She's never had any kind of structure or order. Well, I guess she will in prison now. And I know she had a less than perfect upbringing with a lot of turmoil in her family with her mother in jail half the time. But it also seems that she's always had kind of a shitty attitude towards everybody and everything. She also, according to just about everybody, has showed little to no remorse, where Sandy is supposedly very remorseful. In my opinion, the reason this murder happened was the result of a perfect storm. A perfect storm of two disturbed girls under a set of circumstances where they were both angry, frustrated, and unhappy with their lives in general. And then I think the straw that broke the camel's back was the fact that they were forbidden from seeing each other. I don't think Holly would have done this by herself, although she was the more, I guess, aggressive or violent of the two. I think she needed the catalyst of Sandy's personality added with hers to give her the push towards the act of killing her grandparents. And even though Sandy participated to a degree, I think the whole thing was Holly's idea. She definitely played the larger role in the murders. And there is something I want to address. Remember I said at the beginning of the episode that so there were some things that disturbed me. And this is just my opinion. Of course, you can disagree if you want. But I think if the girls had lived in a bigger city, a more tolerant community, and Holly wasn't raised by, um, i trying to think of a polite word, very religious people or people that were more tolerant, that this may not have happened. Uh, and I read you that letter from the newspaper in order to illustrate, look, this is the type of community these girls live in, and this could not have done any good for their self-esteem and their general welfare, which was already pretty shitty and low. So when we're talking about reasons that this happened, uh, of course, they both had bad childhoods, bad parenting, especially Holly's mother, who was always in and out of jail, and Sandy's mother, who didn't change her diaper and kept on having kids, none of them of which she could take care of. Um, drugs, 
did play a part. Uh, it's not a mitigating factor, but I'm sure it was an added influence in this situation. And I would add the, I guess, judgmental and unhealthy environment. And by that, I mean the church going Bible Belt, homosexuals are nasty, they're going to hell, blah, blah, blah. That type of attitude, I couldn't imagine being gay and growing up surrounded by that kind of attitude. It's, I mean, it's kind of no wonder that they turned out bad. That's just not, and, and this was 2008. I mean, if it's not like this was, you know, 1942 or something. I just couldn't believe that, what was that, 10, I'm bad at math, 10, 12, 14 years ago. It wasn't that long ago, really. And I think this is, this whole crime was so preventable. And there were so many things that went wrong. Starting with both of the girls, the way they were parented, it doesn't seem like either one of their mothers had any business having kids, and neither one of them had a good childhood. And I think Sandy's attorney said something about everybody has failed her. You know, the state, the system, her parents, not so much her dad, but everybody in her life. And that's true. So what can we learn from this? Um, I think the most obvious thing, and I'm pretty sure most of you wouldn't do it, but don't have a kid unless you're in it for life. You're committed to taking care of them and being a good parent. If your kid tells you that they're gay, don't flip your shit and forbid them from seeing their significant other. I guess I can kind of understand about you don't want them sleeping in the same bed during sleepovers, but for fuck's sake, don't say they can't talk to their boyfriend or girlfriend. And before class is over, I just want to get a quick announcement in. You may have seen this on social media already if you follow me. I had a uh, mishap. Well, it's more than a mishap. It was kind of a disaster the other day. My phone shit itself, like totally. It was just, I don't know what happened to it. I had to go to the phone store and they couldn't restore any of my data. I had to get a whole new phone which means I had to redo, restart my Instagram page. So if you go on there now, it'll say True Crime University, but it has an underscore after it. And all my old posts are gone. And I'm still trying to figure out how to get back on Facebook as True Crime University. So it's kind of a mess with that stuff right now. And I found out I have shingles. Yeah, shingles, they're gross. That I thought it was like a bite, and then I'm like, oh, that's, that looks like hives. Because I've never seen them. I didn't know what they look like. And they're gross. They're these, um, I'm not going to show you them, but like, I don't know, it looks like I have some kind of tropical disease in there. They're not so much itchy, but they burn. And I f have this general feeling of just blah, like a bad headache, and my neck hurts, and I'm just like miserable. And it's actually a miracle. What's today? Tuesday. I was afraid I wouldn't get this episode out on time. But I did. Barely. So um, next week we are going to do... A re I have another request. And keep them coming. I love requests. I love when you actually care about what I have to say about something. Um, I got a really nice review today from somebody. And... Since I've been feeling shitty, since I've been sick, that really made me feel a lot better. 
This episode is dedicated to Carl and Sarah Collier. Class dismissed.